pray a little longer because my tablet pin locked. So we're going to have to see how long my memory goes. Like, did I remember how many paragraphs of the opening of what I was going to say? Did I remember? Uh, welcome to those of you who are visiting. Really glad that you could be here this morning. Uh, my name's Steve. I'm going to be sharing part of um, God's Word with us this morning. We're reading from uh, a letter, <coughs> excuse me, that's called the book of First John. Now this is, um, yeah, it's going to reboot the whole way. This is a, a letter that was written about 80 or 90 AD. It was written by a fellow by the name of John. He was one of Jesus' apostles. And he wrote this letter to a bunch of churches who were in Ephesus. Now Ephesus is in modern day Turkey. And John wrote this letter to encourage them to press on with their faith and to also address some false teaching that was being um, shared around in the community. One of the particular things that he was trying to make sure is that people understood that Jesus really came, had a real physical body and yet was God. Because one of the things, here we go, one of the things that he um, was countering was this idea that Jesus just appeared. He was just a, you know, a figment of people's imagination. So we're going to start a series today on the book of 1 John. Actually, we're going to be doing a series over the next six weeks on the three letters that John wrote. But for the next four weeks, we're going to be doing um, 1 John. Yes, I found out where I am. So as we work through this, we're going to see over the next four weeks, we're going to see how um, John says that we can have fellowship with God the Father and with Jesus enabled by the Holy Spirit, and that produces four things. It produces a joyful life. It produces a, a clean life. I should know because I'm doing that one next week as well. A confident life, though, discerning life, and a confident life, okay? A joyful life, a clean life, a discerning life, and a confident life. Now, if you already come to this church, maybe you've read through this letter, maybe this week. If you haven't, or if you've never come to church before, I can show you where to look for it. Have a read over it over the next couple of weeks because John has an interesting way of building an argument. He doesn't kind of argue or build his case the same way that we might. Many years ago, uh, Fran and I were visiting my brother and sister-in-law who lived in London at the time. And while we were walking through, we decided we would climb this, um, this place called the Monument, the Monument to the Great Fire of London built in well, the fire was in 1666. The tower was built about six or seven years later. All right? it's, a, it's a stone tower. It was, it's uh, 62 metres high. It has inside it 345 steps in this winding staircase. Now, that might seem a little bit daunting, but if you really want to live dangerously, can I recommend the option where you convince your pregnant wife to join you? As you make your way up that staircase, you get a sense of deja vu. You think, haven't I seen this before? Round and round, and there's these little kind of arrow slot windows. And each time you pass, you think, I feel like I've seen this. What are we doing here? Are we still here? You keep circling round, step by step. But then you pass through a door at the top, and you look out on this panoramic view of London. I didn't actually put a photo of what the view was, because the view's not important for the purpose of this illustration. <laughs> you know, John's letter is a little bit like this tower. 
lots of the concepts, lots of the ideas that we'll read over the next four weeks, he keeps coming back to. They're ideas that we read in the Gospel of John, which is a, a, a book that John wrote about the story of Jesus. And then he wrote this letter, and the ideas are very similar. And even in this letter, the ideas keep repeating. He keeps coming back at them. And so we, we see this idea from a new facet or from a new angle or from a little bit higher. Each step takes us a bit further along, a little bit higher, until we get to the top and we get to the end and we've got this panoramic view of what it looks like to have fellowship with God. Fellowship with the Father, fellowship with the Son and enabled by the Holy Spirit. And we'll read about, as we go through these verses, uh, these, these uh, chapters, we'll read about how the Father has lavished on us, the love that he's lavished on us that enables us to be called children of God. We'll read about how he who has the Son, he who has Jesus, has life. And we'll read about that this is how we know that we live in him. He has given us of his spirit, the Holy Spirit. I'm looking forward to that view. So let's pray and we'll take the first few steps, hey? Heavenly Father, as we open up your word, it's a joy to read it. It's a joy to be part of uh, fellowship with you and with each other. And Lord, I pray that the truth of your word would work its way down deep into the soil of our hearts and that we would be changed by it. Lord, I pray as, the, as we read these words and cover a distance of 2,000 odd years of history, that we would still see the enduring power of your word to transform our lives and the call that you've placed on our lives, because we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so if you have a Bible, open up to the book of 1 John. If you don't have a Bible, don't worry, I've got all the words on the screen. Of all of the uh, letters that are in the New Testament... John's letter is probably the one that commences in the most unusual way. He doesn't tell us who he's writing to. He doesn't tell us even that it's him that's writing. In fact, he starts with a whole lot of relative pronouns that slowly, that gradually reduce, uh, uh, explain what he's talking about. It reveals the subject. So let's read for the first four verses together. This is what he says. Strange introduction. That which was from the beginning which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We've seen it and testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we've seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. <clears throat> we write this to make our joy complete. Do you notice that John's only gradually revealing the subject that he's talking about here? He's actually telling us about the word of life. It's at the end of verse 1 that it's concerning the word of life. The subject of what he's talking about is gradually revealed in verses 1 and 2, and then the purpose for which he's writing is revealed in verses 3 and 4. So let's deal with the subject first, the word of life. John tells us he is proclaiming a message about the word of life. But what is this? What's this word of life? How is it that he can make a proclamation about it? Well, John unfolds this kind of cryptic start to the letter with um, some revelation about this word of life. And he says, first, it's eternal. This word of life is something eternal. And second, it's something that appeared. Look at the language John uses. He says, that which was from the beginning, and in verse 2 he says, we proclaim to you the eternal life. 
The word of life is eternal. The language that John is using echoes what he wrote at the start of his gospel. And that in turn echoes what we find in the very opening sentences of the Bible. Genesis tells us, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That, among other things, is a statement about the eternal existence of God. He existed before anything was created. John says the same thing in his gospel at the start of John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. He says, in the beginning was the Word, that's Jesus, and the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And here in this letter, John says something similar. That which was from the beginning and which was with the Father. The Word of life is eternal. But then he tells us in verse 2, this second, this second facet of what he's telling us, the life appeared. In fact, he says it twice. He says it at the start of verse 2 and at the end of verse 2. There are several words in Greek that mean life. And the one that John uses here is a word zoe. Any girls in the, in the audience who've got the name zoe, this is, this is where your name comes from. It means life. And it has a particular emphasis on eternal life, spiritual life. In the past few months, you might remember as we've made our way through those I am sayings in John's Gospel where Jesus said I am and then gave an explanation of who he is. We saw this same word Zoe translated life multiple times. I am the bread of life. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth and the life. And in fact, even our series title, this series called Life to the Full is based on John chapter 10 verse 10 where Jesus said, the thief comes only to steal and destroy, but I've come that you may have life and have it to the full. The eternal life entered time and appeared to humans. There's no doubt about the reliability or the, the reality of the appearance of Jesus as the word of life. Because look, John goes on and works his way through human senses to say, this is a factual reality that Jesus came. He starts by saying that he was heard. Jesus was heard. John and the other disciples heard his words. In the Old Testament, the people of Israel heard the word of God. They heard it through the prophets. They heard it through the law. But when Jesus came, they heard the word of God from his very mouth. They heard him each day as he taught, as he prayed. They heard his message with God's authority. And as we'll see when we get to uh, verse 5, John tells us part of what it is that they heard. The second, John says that they saw him with their own eyes. Again, the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, we see the people of God, they saw God in action. They saw him as a pillar of fire in the Exodus. They saw him through the miraculous things that he did. But in Jesus, John and the other disciples saw God with their own eyes. They saw the eternal with their own eyes. They saw him in the flesh. They saw him walking and talking. They saw him eat. They saw him sleeping in a boat. They saw him tired. They saw him joyful. They saw him in anguish and agony. They saw him. But do you notice that John says not only that they saw him with their eyes, he says, which we have looked at. John's not like being redundant here. He's using a different word. When he says we've looked at, that Greek word means to look at something intently. It means to kind of grasp the significance of it, to really peer into it and understand what's going on. A, a better word perhaps, you know, a word that might help us to understand a bit better is perhaps to behold something. 
there is a subtle difference between looking at and beholding. This morning I've looked at all of my kids. But there are times when I have beheld them. When I've looked intently at who they are. And I've grasped the significance of who they are and what they're becoming. I've looked at them, but I've also beheld them. And John uses this same word back in his gospel. He translates it seeing there, as well, we translate it in English, we translate it seeing there. He, he says in verse, John chapter 1, verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Jesus became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory. Same phrase, we have seen his glory. We have looked at it, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. We saw him in the flesh, but more than that, John says, we grasped the significance of what that meant. Fourth, John says, our hands have touched him. He wasn't an apparition. He wasn't a figment of our imagination. He wasn't some kind of spiritual ideal or a spiritual idea. He had a physical body. They leant against him while they were all having meals. He put his hands on their feet when, they washed them, when he washed them. They saw him physically nailed to a cross. And then after that body was raised to life, again, they saw, heard, and touched him again. John tells us in his gospel. Then he, Jesus, he appeared and he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it to my side. Stop doubting and believe. John's not telling us about something that was secondhand. It's not hearsay. It's not something that's an inference that's been drawn or speculation. The word of life appeared. He stepped out of eternity and into time. John tells us we heard him. We saw him, we looked at him, we touched him. He is as real as the person sitting next to you. It's a proclamation that John can make with authority and with accuracy. In a world where we want to have everything, we, well we do, we live in a world where we want to have everything empirically verified, don't we? And yet we can be misled by deep fake videos or AI generated sound. I go off topic. Did you see in the news a couple of weeks ago, Stephen Fry was talking at a conference and he said, listen to this documentary where I'm narrating some history documentary. And then he said, that's not my voice. That was uh, AI generated from them, the software reading my um, audio books, Harry Potter books. We want a verification. We want to believe what we can see and, and hear. Well, John gives us all of these Pieces of evidence, he says, we saw him, we heard him, we touched him, we beheld what it was, we saw the connection between what he said and what he did, we saw it in action. The life appeared and we testify to it. Do you believe that testimony? Do you believe that he appeared? Do you believe that he's the eternal life? John's testimony, this proclamation that he's making is for a purpose, and in verses 3 and 4, he tells us what it is. Let's read on verse 3. We proclaim to you what we've seen and heard, so that, there's your purpose statement, so that you also may have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. He's telling, we have found something incredible and we want you to share it. We want you to have fellowship with us because our fellowship is with God the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. 
fellowship is perhaps a word which um, it's been a bit, maybe a bit, a bit diluted. Perhaps it's lost some of its impact. It's a word that describes deep community, deep connection, a real closeness of relationship. The eternal life who was with the Father, as we saw in verse 2, and who has fellowship with the Father, has appeared. The goal, the purpose of his appearance was that people, you and I, would once again have fellowship with God the Father. That's what John experienced, that's what he's testifying to, and that's what he wants us to enjoy too, that level of fellowship, that level of closeness and connection and community. It's something that results in complete joy. J.B. Phillips, he paraphrases verse 4 like this. He says, we must write and tell you about it. Because the more that fellowship extends, the greater the joy it brings to us who are already in it. It's the joy of experiencing connection and seeing others experience that connection and that belonging. I already have joy and fellowship with my parents and with my parents-in-law. I already have fellowship with them and it is a joy. But it also brings me joy. It completes my joy to see my children having fellowship with my parents and my parents-in-law and their cousins and their uncles and their aunts. Each connection compounds the joy. And John says his purpose for writing is to make our joy complete. It's not a possessive hour like, it's my joy is complete, but Pete's is not. It's collectively, our joy is complete. We all enjoy fellowship with God the Father and the Son through the Holy Spirit. It's a fellowship, it's a connection that is possible because God himself is in fellowship. The author and the commentator, Constantine Campbell, he puts it this way, our fellowship with each other and our fellowship with the Father and Son are derivative of, that is, they have their source in, the fellowship that the Father and the Son themselves enjoy. God is a God of relationship, and that's why the goal of John's proclamation is fellowship. We want you to be part of the family. Do you want a joyful life? A joyful life is found in fellowship with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. Joy is made complete when we have fellowship with him and fellowship with each other. A joyful life is one in which there is belonging and connection and community with God and with each other. Can you see in these, these opening few verses that John tells us that this fellowship, this community is you know, spiritual, it has a spiritual source. It's the word of life who was in the beginning and with the Father. It has a spiritual source. But it's grounded in history. In the appearance of Christ, he was heard, he was seen, he was looked at, he was touched. And when that truth is proclaimed, fellowship expands and joy is made complete. John proclaims this word of life so that there's fellowship, so that you can be part of God's family. And as we move into the second half of this chapter, John tells us about who it is that we're in fellowship with. What does it mean? Who is it to, who are we in fellowship with? Who is this God the Father? And how can we tell if we really are in fellowship with him? True fellowship means 
uh, true fellowship with God means walking in the light. The second half of this chapter is actually the start of an argument that runs all the way into chapter 2 and which John keeps circling back to later in the letter. And he starts this line of argument again with some similarities to what you might already recognize from Genesis and from 1 John. So in Genesis we read, God said, let there be light and there was light. God saw the light was good and he separated light from the darkness. And in John chapter 1 verses 4 to 5 we see in him that is in Jesus was life and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And so when we get to verse 5 in um, John's letter here, John says this is the message that we've heard. Remember John said we heard him? This is the message that we heard from him and we declare it to you. God is light in him there is no darkness at all. That is a profound statement. It's a profound statement about who you can have fellowship with. The message he received and that he's sharing is that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. What does that mean? It means that God is all good and there is no evil. He is perfect. There's no trace of sin. There is no deficiency. He is loving. There's no malice. There's no selfishness in his actions. He's all-knowing. He has no ignorance. He makes no mistakes. He's all truth. There's no error. There's no deception. He is entirely pure. There's no selfishness, no mixed motives. He is all-powerful. He's never eclipsed, surpassed, outmaneuvered or outfoxed. God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. That's who John wants you to have fellowship with. God is light. To have fellowship with him is to have life to the full. That is joy made complete. But how do we know if we are in fellowship? In verses 6 to 10, John poses five if statements to assess the truthfulness of or the accuracy of a claim to have fellowship with God. Let's work our way through them. The first two if statements in verses 6 and 7 ask us to evaluate where are we walking. Verse 6, if we claim to have fellowship with him, that's with God, and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he's in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. These if statements force us to consider whether our claims and our actions are in alignment and whether they're also in alignment with the God whom we claim to be in fellowship with. What does our walk look like? As we'll see in a moment when we get to verse uh, 8 to 10, walking in darkness is not quite the same as walking in sin. It involves sin, but it's something more. 
We all sin, that's the point that we'll get to in, uh, in a moment. But the difference between committing sins and walking in darkness is about the trajectory or the pattern of life. When we walk in darkness, we are not walking in fellowship at all. That's the contrast we see in verse 7. See? But if we walk in the light, he's in the light and we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. That's what we celebrated when we took communion. And um, we'll probably, well, we will, not probably, we will look at that in more detail next week when we get into chapter 2. But see, John identifies these two results. Purified from sin and fellowship with each other. You might remember a couple of weeks back, I think it was the day Sean W. Smith was here, we were looking at uh, God, uh, Jesus saying, I am the light of the world. Ch- John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. It's the same idea. If you're following Jesus, you are by definition not walking alone. You are in fellowship. If you're following him, where are you walking? What is the trajectory of your life? Are you walking in darkness or are you walking in light and enjoying that fellowship? In the last three verses of the passage we're going to look at today, John asks three more ifs. He poses three more ifs. He puts forward three propositions about how honest we are about our sin. Two of those Propositions are about denial and one's about confession. In verse 8 he says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And in verse 10 he says, if we claim we've not sinned at all, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. Both of those statements highlight how much of a nonsense it is to claim to be without sin. It's a nonsense And yet our powers of um, self-deception are probably the closest thing we have to a superpower. There are lots of ways that we claim to be without sin. Each of them is a deception. We deceive ourselves when we minimise sin. Maybe we make comparisons, we're not as bad as that person or we didn't, you know, that sin is not as bad as another sin. We deceive ourselves when we rationalise sin, when we blame someone or blame our circumstances. We deceive ourselves when we don't call it sin, when instead we might call it a disorder or we call it by truth or we call it self-expression. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. In verse 10, John's even more blunt. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. If you've not sinned, then it's a lie that Jesus needed to die on the cross for you. You make him out to be a liar because God has said all have sinned. John told us that he wrote this letter so that we would have fellowship and that joy would be complete. How can we have any fellowship if we're riddled with um, self-deception when there's no truth in us and when we are in effect calling the God who we want to have a relationship with a liar? That's no fellowship. There's no joy. But there is a cure for this self-deception. 
And we read about it in verse 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. That's the key to fellowship. That's the key to a restored relationship. Fellowship, family, connection can't be built on a lie. The key to fellowship isn't to ignore sin. It's to bring it out, bring it out into the open, to confess it. God, God's faithfulness and his justice ensure forgiveness because he has promised to forgive those who repent and believe in Jesus. Don't put off the confession. In Psalm 32, David gives us a picture of this blessing of what it is to be forgiven. He tells us of this transition from, from misery and anxiety when we have unconfessed sin to relief and the refreshment that comes when we do confess and are forgiven. He says, let's read these first five verses. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. And here's the transition. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I'll confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Do you want a joyful life? It's within reach. If I have tonsillitis and the doctor prescribes me antibiotics, I'm not going to delay going to the chemist to get them. Once I've gone to the chemist and got them, I'm not going to delay taking them. I don't say, hmm, I might set aside some time on the weekend to take those antibiotics. I'll take them straight away. It would be moronic not to do so. I'm sick and I need to be healed. I don't claim to be without tonsillitis. I acknowledge that I have it. I seek help. I implement the solution. It's the same with my sin. Except maybe not. Maybe I do put off the solution. In truth, I'm probably quicker to take antibiotics. But the longer I delay my confession, the longer I am out of fellowship with God my Father. Is there something in your life that you're rationalizing or minimizing, but which you know in your heart is sin? Then confess it. He's faithful and just to forgive you and to purify you. Leave it behind. Walk in the light. Confess and enjoy forgiveness. Because with it, you can enjoy the fellowship with the Father and the Son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, these are wonderful words, sobering words, but wonderful words about the freedom that we have to approach you forgiven because of Jesus. Lord, we know that our natural inclination is to walk in darkness. But Lord, you've called us into the light because you, Lord, are light. There is no darkness in you at all. And Lord, it's my prayer that our joy would be complete as the message of Jesus is proclaimed, as people come to receive forgiveness 
to be welcomed into fellowship with you and with us. Lord, give us a passion for that, to see the joy and experience the joy of more and more people connecting with you, experiencing the forgiveness of sins. Lord, thank you so much for Jesus. We give him all the praise and glory in Jesus' name. Amen.